I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no denying that I spent way too much money on these things back in the 90s. This is Encounter 62, all the weekly world news that's fit to print. I loved the weekly world news. Back in high school, in the early 90s, I bought it way too often, as I said. And the front page headline stories were great, of course. But the regular features, like Ed Anger's um, angry columns about the loss of American greatness, Dear Dottie's Mirror Universe and Lander's gimmick, Serena Sabak, America's sexiest psychic, it was all great. And the ads, you know, so much, so much junk for sale. And I still remember the first issue I bought, and I went back to check to make sure I remembered the headline correctly. February 11th, 1992. Milwaukee cannibal kills his cellmate. Vicious convicts fear they'll be Dahmer's next meal. Oh, and the Loch Ness monster was apparently pregnant. I mean, who wouldn't pay 75 cents for that? So in this episode, we're going to look at some old Weekly World News issues from the early 80s and the early 90s and, and compare them and see some differences in the way they treat stories about flying saucers, because it always wasn't just about Bat Boy and Pregnant Nessie. So the Weekly World News launched in 1979 and ran in print until about 2007, and a few years after that, transitioned to a website. Why did it begin? Well, it begins with Generoso Pope, the tabloid mogul behind the Inquirer. He had a problem. The Inquirer had just transitioned to being full color, and Pope had a black and white printing setup going spare, so the low-budget, weird cousin to the Inquirer was born. Now, if you look at the Wikipedia entry for the Weekly World News, you'll get the impression that the satirical, parodic bent it's known for, Bat Boy, that kind of stuff, was part of the deal from the beginning. But not really. It was always outrageous and always weighted towards stories on the paranormal, but early issues were much more of a mixed bag and much more like a traditional tabloid in the sense that there was a great deal of celebrity and media news also. There were also regular features on historical figures and the like. I mean, does this sound like a headline you'd expect from the Weekly World News? Dorothea Dix fought tirelessly for the rights of the mentally ill. That was from the January 6th, 1981 issue, and I read the whole article looking for something that was Weekly World Newsy, but, but no, it was a straightforward piece about Dorothea Dix. My perceptions of the Weekly World News had been shattered. Of course, as I read further in that issue and, and others in 1981, I found some great stuff to share with you, and we begin with this, from the January 27th, 1981 edition. On the front page, we see... Hitler's Secret UFO Plans Nazis hoped to spread terror in flying saucers. That's more like it. There's some interesting material in here, especially if you pay attention to one of the names that's mentioned. UFOs that have been spotted by thousands worldwide since the end of World War II were actually created by Nazi scientists under the orders of their crazed leader Adolf Hitler. That's the astonishing claim of experts who say they have seen the plans for these super-advanced flying saucers. 
Incredibly, Olav Meyer, a German geologist now living in Seville, Spain, says that the Nazi UFO scientists fell into the hands of the Russians and may still be working for them. He says, quote, It's not impossible to presuppose that the UFOs whose construction had been initiated in Hitler's Germany reached high peaks of development and technological perfection years later in Russia. Meyer said he could not confirm that the Russians were behind recent UFO sightings, but he insists that the flying vehicles were definitely first developed in Nazi Germany. Backing up Meyer's claim is journalist and UFO investigator Christoph Friedrich of Toronto, Canada, who told the news, quote, It is a historical fact that Germany had flying saucers during World War II. This was a logical outcome of their aeronautical research, end quote. So Nazi UFOs are sort of a run-of-the-mill flying saucer thing nowadays, due in no small part to the topic's popularity on the History Channel over the last 20 years. However, it's important to remember that one of the important I, I don't know what to call it, origin vectors of the Nazi UFO narrative as presented here, was one of the most prominent Nazi promoters and Hitler enthusiasts of modern times, and he's quoted extensively here. It's Christoph Friedrich, or to use his full name, Ernst Christoph Friedrich Zundel, author of books like The Hitler We Loved and Holocaust Denial Classic, Did Six Million Really Die?, Born in Germany, Zundel lived most of his life in Canada, where he was convicted of violating that nation's laws against publishing works, quote, likely to incite hatred against an identifiable group. Leaving for the United States in 2000, he overstayed his welcome and his visa and was deported back to Canada, where ultimately he was extradited to his native Germany to face hate speech charges from a visit there in the 90s. He served five years in a German prison and was released in 2010. He died in 2017. His publications through his Samizdat publishing company did much to popularize the idea not only of Nazi UFOs, but also secret Nazi bases in Antarctica. So in the article, elsewhere in the article is mentioned a book that Christoph Friedrich wrote, UFOs, Nazi Secret Weapon? In an interview about the topic with Skeptic Magazine for their pseudo-history issue, we can see at least one purpose that Zundel had in authoring these UFO books. The interviewer notes that Zundel is making jokes about dealing with the lunatic fringe and, and really sort of silly topics, and they're talking on the phone, and Zundel tells the author that basically the UFO book part of his business was a ploy. He says, quote, I realized that North Americans were not interested in being educated. They want to be entertained. The book was for fun, with a picture of the Fuhrer on the cover and flying saucers coming out of Antarctica. It was a chance to get on radio and TV talk shows. For about 15 minutes of an hour program, I'd talk about that esoteric stuff. Then I would start talking about those Jewish scientists in concentration camps working on these secret weapons. And that was my chance to talk about what I wanted to talk about, end quote. The interviewer then asks him if he stands by the UFO books that he wrote. And Zundel's response is, quote, look, it has a question mark at the end of the title. End quote. You know, there's nothing more fun, in his words, than a book with a picture of the Fuhrer on the cover. And that question mark at the end of the title gimmick is a, uh, a real get-out-of-jail-free card for things like UFO bases in Antarctica and Did Six Million Really Die? So um, I guess if you want to publish something either dumb or horrible, you can remember that. So in a way, uh, from Zundel's perspective here, the UFO stuff is kind of a gateway drug. You buy an interesting sounding book about Nazi UFOs, and next thing you know, you're on a mailing list, which numbered 
in the tens of thousands in the 80s and drifting toward material even less savory than UFOs. So, did the Weekly World News know all this? I highly doubt it, but I, I think even at, it's unfortunate that eyeballs were driven towards Zundel's material even inadvertently. The next month, on February 24th, 1981, screaming at us from the checkout line, we see this. Housewife witnesses bizarre right on UFO. Now, this is a good place to take a second and parse out a typical weekly world news headline of the time. Housewife carries a, a few connotations, doesn't it? Female, possibly unsophisticated, not someone out looking for trouble. Bizarre right has overtones of ritual horribleness. Uh, this is the early 80s. Satanic panic is, uh, is on the phenomenon, on the phenomenon, is on the horizon to become a, a hot culture war phenomenon. And on a UFO... Well, anything on a UFO is great, so that's just icing on a cake. So, what was the bizarre rite that was witnessed by the housewife? A housewife watched aliens from outer space mutilate a calf, then medically examine her daughter. And the two strange beings aboard the UFO said they did it to benefit all mankind. The incredible eyewitness account came from Judy Doherty of a suburban Houston, Texas, who made the astounding disclosure while under hypnosis. Her eyewitness account is the most amazing since the wave of thousands of catamulations began in the 1960s. Judy witnessed the bizarre scene in 1973, but it was only recently that she was driven by constant headaches and was hypnotized to get at her problem. Dr. Leo Sprinkle, a widely respected UFO expert and director of counseling and testing at the University of Wyoming, hypnotized the woman and recorded the astounding report. Cattle mutilations, yes. We'll probably do a whole episode on this down the road, but here we have some stuff going on that was gaining notoriety at the time and would become a huge part of the paranormal, conspiratorial, ufological world of the 80s and 90s. Now, Leo Sprinkle was not a made-up name or made-up person. The credentials cited in the article were legit, and he was an advisor and consultant to APRO, our old pals at APRO, the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization at the time. We'll hear more from APRO in a bit, but I want to point out that if you've heard about the cattle mutilation phenomenon at all, you're probably familiar with Linda Moulton Howe's 1980 documentary, A Strange Harvest, one of the first in-depth examinations of the mutilation issue. In that documentary, we have footage of Sprinkle hypnotizing and interviewing Doherty, and uh, you're going to hear a little bit of that right now. And I've got to say, it's remarkably in line with what was reported in the Weekly World News, which is which is always nice to see. Now you're standing outside your car. Now you're looking up. You can describe your impressions. What are your impressions? It's like a spotlight that's shining down on the back of my car. And it's like it has substance to it. I can see an animal being taken up in this. I can see it squirming and trying to get free. And it's like it's being sucked up. It's taken into some sort of chamber. It's a little round, tiny room. I get nauseated 
at watching how they excise parts. It's done very quickly. The calf doesn't die immediately. For some reason, the calf's heart isn't taken, and I don't know. It seems like it's still living, and that upset me very much. And then I can see the calf being lowered. It's like it's being dropped back down. And when it's on the ground, it's dead. I can see that it's not moving. But I feel very sick to my stomach at what I witnessed. You see the animal being cut up? Yes. Mm-hmm. How is it being cut up? Dissected. Mm-hmm. With knives? Instruments of some kind. Mm-hmm. Can you describe the instruments? They're like a knife, but they have different kind of handles. More like a razor that's not, doesn't have movable parts, but like a straight razor type. There's tissue. It's laid out flat and smooth. It glistens. And the needles, there's needles in it, or what appears to be like needles that may be probes, I don't know. But it has a tube connected to it. And the same thing with what appears to be testicles. Can't tell. There's a probe or a needle or something inserted and the tube leaving. The same with the eye. Is anybody else around you? I feel the presence of other things, but I don't know what they are. I can't see them. Mm-hmm. You feel you're standing by the side of the road by your car now, or are you standing someplace else now? I feel in two places at once. Mm-hmm. Okay, describe how you feel. I feel like that I was able to see what was going on in the craft, but I was also standing beside the road. Mm-hmm. Okay, just let yourself focus on what is happening inside the craft. Be aware of who is around you. It's okay. You'll be able to describe who is standing around you. It appears to be two little men. Two little men? Mm-hmm. How do they look? Their hands look funny. They have long claw nails, like. They have very large eyes. They're very hypnotic. Like, they're so big that, and they don't blink. Their eyes do not blink. It's almost like, a, I guess, a snake. They were very snappy about their movements and they knew exactly what they were doing and I felt a little better because I for some reason they projected that it was necessary this be done that you know it was for our betterment for the betterment of mankind that this was done that they were more or less watching out for us creepy so as with the Hitler UFO story here the weekly world news clearly has its finger on the pulse of what the UFO field was doing at the time which I've got to be honest surprised me a little bit I was similarly surprised by our next story from March 21st 1981 you're at the 7-eleven you're buying a bottle of jolt cola and some trucker speed because you're up 
driving all night to get back to campus in time for morning classes because you decided on a whim to visit somebody eight hours away the night before. This may be slightly autobiographical when this catches your bleary, sleep-deprived eyes. Three, survive UFO attack. This 1981 article provided coverage of one of the most fascinating and well-documented UFO encounters of the entire decade. One of the most terrifying UFO encounters ever in America has left two women and a child trapped in a living nightmare of pain and fear. Despite exhaustive hospital tests and treatment, baffled medical experts still can't come up with a cure for their endless physical agony. The three helpless victims, Betty Cash, Vicki Landrum, and Vicki's seven-year-old son, Colby, encountered the thundering, flame-belching UFO as it hovered only a few hundred feet from their car on a remote road near Dayton, Texas. Within hours of the shrieking horror of that experience, Betty and Vicky's skin turned beet red, their eyes began to burn and tear uncontrollably, and the women felt as though they were seeing through a misty film. By morning, Betty's body was covered with half-dollar-sized lumps, her hair was falling out in handfuls, and she was suffering the most agonizing headaches she had ever experienced. The woman was so weak from pain, she couldn't even get out of bed to call for help. Within a few days of the encounter, Vicky's vision became blurred. An eye specialist told the frightened 57-year-old that cataract-like films were now forming. You'll probably be blind in less than a year, he said. Vicky described driving down the road around 9 in the evening. Suddenly, quote, it looked like the whole sky had split and fire was coming down almost to the road, end quote. They thought it was the end of the world. Betty got out of the car and started walking toward it, quote, as big as a water tank and about half a mile up in the sky. Eventually, the object started to move away, but then this happened. Incredibly, Betty and Vicky said they counted 23 unmarked double-rotor helicopters maneuvering around the UFO as it began its ascent. Officials at military bases in and around Central Texas told the news their flight records show no large movement of double-rotor helicopters on the night of the encounter. Unmarked helicopters around a UFO. It's wild. Another pair of witnesses, Nellie Zedek, her son John, and his wife Tony, had seen the object, but had not exited their car and suffered no physical effects. The expert on the scene was from APRO. When this sighting first came to my attention, I classified it as a close encounter of the second kind, declared Bill English of the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization in Arizona. But because of our investigation, I've since elevated it to a close encounter of the fourth kind, when the sighter is injured or attacked. At any rate, it's the most incredible UFO sighting reported in the U.S. in recent years. We'll be discussing Bill English's role in the late 1980s UFO scene another time, but at this point, he was an investigator with APRO. I think. Uh, researcher Kurt Collins, who's done extensive work on the Cash Landrum case, interviewed English about his role in the investigation. Collins explained that Landrum called the National UFO Reporting Center, who forwarded the information to APRO. And Collins describes English as having intercepted, his word, intercepted the case, which makes it sound a bit like English was working sort of against APRO. English explains that he was, quote, hanging around the APRO office in order to pick up cases. One day, the secretary received a call from one of the ladies begging for help. She said her friend was dying. Eng end quote. English then took the lead on the investigation working with MUFON, which, according to English, would end up taking all the credit. English was also the means by which the Weekly World News got a hold of the story. Collins explains that there were some pretty close connections between tabloid news companies and UFO organizations during this period, and it was 
a pretty accepted thing for UFO organizations like APRO to raise cash by selling UFO story tips. English uh, did this, hoping that uh, Betty and Vicky would get some money or some kind of compensation. Uh, he got about 100 bucks and he passed it straight on to APRO, he says. We will, of course, return to Cash Landrum at some point down the road. But for now, let's move on. Because you're sitting in the laundromat and you're wondering if you're going to have enough quarters to dry all your clothes. And you notice a discarded paper on top of a washing machine. Picking it up, you're shocked to read, Blazing UFO Blasts Town. This is from the August 1st, 1981 issue. Sorry, August 4th, 1981 issue. And it's an interesting story. A terrifying, crown-shaped UFO streaked out of a cloudless sky and destroyed dozens of homes while hundreds of terrified villagers prayed frantically for divine mercy. The monstrous craft belched smoke and screamed like a banshee while it ravaged the village of Baradame in Senegal on the northwest coast of Africa. It made a noise like a mighty herd of elephants, and I was almost suffocated by all the scorching heat when it flew over my home, survivor Mabei Kuoma said. The strange craft had a long shaft, and it was of a blue color. At first, I thought it was a rocket that had gone wild and was flying over our village. The original reporting of this incident came in a newspaper from Dakar in Senegal on September 18, 1980, almost a year before the Weekly World News story. The archives of the UFO News Clipping Service have English translations of that article and ones from subsequent days as the investigation went on. Here's an example of a, sort of a summary of their reporting at the initial sort of aftermath of the sighting. The phenomenon attacked only some houses, of which the majority were situated along a north-south axis, but it also jumped over entire blocks at a whim to hit other allotments further away. It acted like a whirlwind which selected its victims. All the people who were interrogated stated having seen a long object with a head like a crown, blue in color, rapid and noisy, lifting up sand and gravel in its passage which it threw against any object in its path. Everyone who saw it stated that it was an object that they had never seen before. At the time of the first article, there were a number of possibilities floating around to explain what had happened. Three hypotheses are being considered. Either it was actually a flying saucer, or it was a sonic boom from an airplane, or it was simply an extraordinarily violent whirlwind. Five people in all were injured by the collapse of buildings blown down by the object, which gave off an intermittent red light. In the next issue of the paper, it was reported that the head of the local government, when interviewed, described the event as being caused by a thunderbolt, which the newspaper does not accept. They also report that the witness testimony that's come out of this is pretty indisputable. It is not possible to ignore the testimonies of the villagers who saw and went through the phenomenon. Considered and reconsidered by the scientific team which went to the site, the testimonies are absolutely in agreement. The village of Baradame did indeed see a flying object resembling, from afar, a kite, and which afterward appeared as a disc, elongated by what the witnesses compared to a train of smoke. So these original reports from the UFO News Clipping Service and the story from Weekly World News are the only things I've ever seen about this very strange story. I'm also fairly certain that Weekly World News probably subscribed to the news clipping service, considering how many of their stories, UFO stories, over the years came from non-Anglophone countries. The translations provided by the clipping service were, I'm sure, an incredible source of page-filling excitement. Also in that issue was an advertisement for some pretty interesting information headed by large letters reading Situation Red, we learn some shocking things. Most importantly, what 
does Situation Red actually mean? These are the code words used by the Pentagon to designate the continuing siege of Earth by spaceships from other planets. Well, that clears that up. The ad spends several hundred words describing UFO flyovers of nuclear weapon sites, uh, reopening of Air Force investigations into UFO sightings, and the possibility of the then-new space shuttle being armed, quote, with deadly laser weapons. The author of this notable tome is Leonard Stringfield. Now, you have the opportunity to find out what, up until now, has been denied to you by the powers that be. Leonard Stringfield, currently an executive with Du Bois Chemicals, has been investigating UFOs for over 25 years and has established many high-ranking military contacts who continually fill him in, as long as their remarks are off the record. At one time, Stringfield acted in an official capacity as a civilian informant to the Air Defense Command on UFOs, with the designated codename Foxtrot Kilo 30 Blue. In Situation Red, Stringfield presents a detailed update on strange and frequently frightening encounters with alien beings. He believes that the increasing incidence of physical injury, dangerous interference, and outright abduction by interplanetary travelers is proved by a mass of evidence. This carefully documented, hard-covered book of more than 200 pages contains dozens of incredible yet unimpeachable cases of common men and women who have been suddenly caught up in events stranger than the wildest science fiction. Situation Red dares to ask these questions. Who are these visitors to our planet? What do they want? Why does the government fear disclosure of the truth? All this for only $9.95 plus $1 shipping and handling. But wait, there's more. Free offer. Order your copy of Situation Red now and receive free of charge a reprint of the previously classified ultra-top-secret document titled UFO Hypothesis and Survival Questions Obtainable Nowhere Else, along with a portfolio of government reports of UFOs sighted near military bases. So, the book was offered for sale by UFO News Service of New York, New York. A little googling confirmed my assumption that the man behind the madness is Timothy Green Beckley, who's published more entertaining UFO material than any single other person not named Gray Barker. Note, I did not say necessarily accurate or critically important UFO material. Okay, footnote time. Situation Red had originally been published by Doubleday as a hardcover and Fawcett as a mass market paperback in 1977 with a cover price of a buck seventy-five. It had a foreword by NICAF's Donald Kehoe also. In 1978, Sphere published it in the UK. Sphere, as you might know, was the same publisher that did Alternative 3. There's no indication of Beckley republishing this book, and at the time, he was registering ISBN numbers with his publications, so there would have been a record. So, this is either an ad for remaindered copies of the hardcover, or one hell of a markup on the mass market paperback, because even taking inflation into account, it only should have been like 250 or so. I haven't been able to find the original price of the hardcover edition from Doubleday, so I'll keep you posted on that. Footnote over. In the September 8th, 1981 issue, there's another great ad. UFOs are real. Reports so bizarre they stagger the imagination. Aliens have arrived on Earth. Strange creatures roam our planet in the dead of night. The fevered overhyping continues with this. 
In the last few months, reports of close encounters with strange alien beings have been increasing in number. A worldwide wave of bizarre face-to-face contacts with the occupants of flying saucers is now in progress. Daily newspapers don't print the news. TV and radio stations remain silent, yet one dedicated researcher, Timothy Green Beckley, has been compiling data and is convinced that there will soon be a mass landing of extraterrestrial spaceships on our planet. In Strange Encounters, Bizarre and Eerie Contact with Flying Saucer Occupants, he writes about ten never-before-told stories right out of the twilight zone of ufology that will have you sitting on the edge of your seat as you turn each page, perhaps just a little afraid to go to the next. This volume isn't meant for the weak-hearted, as it may shock your sensibility. There are a couple of these incidents, and, and they did actually very nearly shock my sensibility. Here's one. Strangest encounter ever. Mickey E. of San Diego says she and her girlfriend experienced a night of unbelievable terror as they drove home. It all began with a group of lights and went on to include a dog-like creature with blazing red eyes, bizarre Tinkerbell lights that touched them in the darkness of their stalled automobile, a little boy that materialized in the back seat, the stranger who offered them assistance only to vanish before their eyes, and weird beings who emerged from a landed spaceship and walked across the highway carrying mysterious tubes. And? UFO beings direct my life. Something happened at age six that makes Lori R. believe she is not one of us. More and more, we cannot deny the evidence that Earthlings are being possessed of supernatural powers due to a special link they have with a race of aliens from the cosmos. And of course, there's discussion of Mount Shasta. If you listen to our Orfeo Angelucci episode, uh, and you can find it in the archives if you haven't, you'll know the earliest origins of this uh, sort of Mount Shasta's prominence in New Age type stuff. Here we see it make a UFO-related appearance. Mount Shasta. Space base. While the outer space aliens are seemingly keeping out of sight for the most part, there is possibly one place you can travel to and actually see and talk with beings who are much more advanced than we are. Mount Shasta, a volcanic mountain in northern California, is both beautiful and mysterious. Over the years, many strange things have been seen in the vicinity of this 14,161-foot towering fortress of nature. Shasta is believed to be a landing port for extraterrestrial beings, and we are given proof that these aliens have established contact with a race of little people who live inside Earth. Uh-oh. It looks like the, uh, the, the, the fairies or the fey folk or whatever the technical term is are in league with the aliens at Mount Shasta. So this is a, uh, this is a Timothy Green Beckley book, and, uh, and it's great. And um, once again, if you send eight ninety five plus one dollar shipping to UFO Review, you can have this information for yourself. UFO Review, of course, being the publication of the uh, UFO News Service. But wait, there's more. Special offer: send for a copy of this book at once, and we will include with your order a free trial subscription to the world's only flying saucer newspaper, UFO Review which prints dramatic photos, uncensored stories, and first-hand encounters with alien beings. We'll be doing a zine scene episode on UFO Review in um, December, I think? Uh, Maybe? I I just sort of pulled that out of the air. Sure, I'll put it on the calendar for December. But for now, let's jump forward to September 20th, 1988, so sort of the end of the 80s here, and see what's going on. 
you're at the dentist because you need some really serious work done because you've been putting off your, your dental care for a long time. And as you sit there in the waiting room, you realize that the only source of reading material in the waiting room is the weekly world news. And you start to think that maybe you've chosen perhaps the wrong dentist, but then this headline jumps out at you and you know everything is going to be okay. UFO base found in New Mexico. But first, there's also a, a little sub-headline. Aliens visited Fergie's baby, says stunned British press. Let's take the Fergie story first. For younger listeners, that, that is anybody under the age of 40, Fergie here is Sarah Ferguson, the Duchess of York, who was married to Prince Andrew. They later divorced, and the whole thing was a, a staple of tabloid royalty coverage for those, uh, those who cared. Anyway, here's the lowdown on the alien-friendly princess. Fergie's baby had a close encounter with a UFO when she was 13 days old, but here's the clincher. The infant Beatrice spelled out the words bright lights with alphabet blocks to describe her experience. Makes sense to me. Before we get back to it, thanks for the anniversary well wishes and thanks for pardoning our dust as we moved podcast hosts away from our clutched together DIY system to Pinecast, and it seems to have worked very smoothly indeed. Such miracles are possible thanks to the generous donations we, uh, we've received and, and continue to receive. Thank you. Despite the change in behind-the-scenes technology, you can still check out past episodes, read reviews of saucer-related stuff, and support the show with your love offerings at saucerlife.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, or email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the Saucer Life wherever you find podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Next time. It is what I think was the best of the live talks I did over the summer. Uh, this one was in Dexter, Michigan, and we are going to explore the marsh gas life. Now, back to the news. So about that alien base in New Mexico, we discussed this sort of thing back in the archives in Counter 507, or Season 5, Episode 7, with the way Apple Podcasts has started numbering it. And it's nice to see the way uh, the, these things dovetail between the heavy sarcasm quotes here, real world of ufology in the late 80s, and the weekly world news. So what can we learn from this article? Diabolical invaders from another solar system have set up a secret underground base in the rugged mountains of northern New Mexico so they can shanghai human guinea pigs for bizarre genetic experiments. And shockingly, the U.S. and a host of other nations are involved in a colossal cover-up of the horrifying story because they were hoodwinked into okaying the loathsome tests during a series of incredible face-to-face -face meetings with the extraterrestrial fiends. This numbing news comes from some of the top U.S. investigators of outer space visitors, said veteran UFO researcher Leonard Stringfield of Cincinnati, Ohio. Stringfield said confidential sources informed him of the secret meetings which took place in the desert region of New Mexico and about the hellish pact. This all sounds really familiar, doesn't it? Now, it's interesting that they quote Len Stringfield extensively in the article, but make it clear that Stringfield is... Stringfield, not Stringfeld. Stringfield is getting the information from confidential sources. As we know from previous episodes, this is material that had begun circulating uh, in the mainstream of ufology in the late 1980s, thanks to the work of people like John Lear. Later on in the article, we get some commentary from Stringfield about what he thinks may be going on. Personally, I give credence to the reports that the aliens are up to something, and it's no good. I believe they're here for some selfish purpose, not to take us over so much as to satisfy their scientific curiosity about us. 
Who knows why, though? Perhaps they seeded Earth with our ancestors thousands of years ago. Or perhaps their home planet is similar to Earth and is dying. There's no way of knowing for sure, yet. You just take the information available and try to fit the pieces together. Included in the information available, Stringfield said, are persistent reports that the evil spacemen have an underground installation near an Apache Indian reservation near Dulce, New Mexico. From what I've been able to learn, our government and military know its precise location. Now, there's a neat twist here. The aliens have a base near Dulce, and the government may know about it. This runs a bit counter to the usual story of Dulce being a joint base, aliens and humans, and then the aliens take it over, there's a gunfight where Phil Schneider gets zapped and so on. We're seeing, I don't know if we're seeing the story at an earlier stage, but we're seeing a different version of the story than we usually hear, which I, I think is pretty fascinating. Moving ahead a few months to January 1989, we're starting to get headlines that are a bit more reminiscent of what we're used to at the Weekly World News. Angry trucker fires five bullets into UFO. TV cartoons make kid act like Donald Duck 24 hours a day. A Christmas message from Tammy Baker. As husband Jim faces 120 years in prison. Okay, wow. It was a busy week in the world. Let's just look at the UFO story. As, as much as I'd like to spend time on, on Tammy Faye Baker's Christmas letter, uh, let's just look at the UFO stuff. A truck driver claims to have shot a UFO with five bullets from his 9mm automatic, partially disabling the craft before it glowed bright green and disappeared. Sergio Cavadini, 42, was not injured in the encounter on a lonely highway near Ancona, Italy, but he told cops that he feared for his life and would have killed the extraterrestrial pilot and crew without hesitation. The terrifying drama allegedly unfolded around midnight on November 28th. Cavadini said he was hauling a load of vegetables into Ancona when the saucer-shaped craft shot down out of the sky and began pacing him on the highway. I almost had a heart attack right there behind the wheel, said Cavadini. The thing was green and glowing and at least 150 feet long. I stomped on the accelerator, but it stayed right beside me, so I slammed on the brakes, but it stopped too. Then it nudged the side of my truck and tried to push me off the highway. Cavadini said he grabbed a 9mm automatic he carries for protection and jumped out the passenger side of the truck. He started to run away, then turned and fired five shots into the side of the UFO. When I fired, the UFO listed to one side as it hovered in midair, said Cavadini. Then it glowed bright green and disappeared. Ancona police confirmed that Cavadini's truck was dented but refused to say whether they believed a UFO had caused the damage. They also acknowledged that they received 50 reports from people who claimed to have seen a bright green flying saucer on the night of November 28th, but again refused to say if the sightings and Cavadini's encounter were related. I used to think flying saucers were all a hoax, Cavadini said, but I believe in them now. Now that's a nice little compact story. It doesn't get involved with any existing UFO mythology and is, in my opinion, something that you could have seen in the pages of the Avro Bulletin back in the day. It's a bit of a surprise that the bullets had an effect on the thing. Usually uh, saucers are a bit more sturdy, but it's a neat angle. And in true Weekly World News fashion, the article ends with the protagonist proclaiming his belief. I couldn't find any trace of this story elsewhere, uh, but if you know its origins, drop me a line. We're getting close to the end, and we're going to wrap up with a run of issues from the early 90s, and not only the period in which I started to read it, but the era in which the Weekly World News began to get a bit more overtly satirical. 
And nowhere was this more evident than in some of the regular features, including the advice column, Dear Dottie. Dottie, as I mentioned at the top of the show, was sort of like Ann Landers on a really bad day, sort of bizarro world Ann Landers, taking uh, taking all the things that, that made Ann Landers interesting, sort of the, the, the practicality and the, the common sense, but some empathy, and getting rid of all of that and just being kind of harsh. So the best thing about Dear Dottie, I thought, was the the confidential section where we just see Dottie's answers and the supposed reader questions are left up to the imagination. A lot of these, sort of humor-wise, don't hold up because they're they're kind of offensive, a lot of them, um, sort of uncomfortably so. But here's one that I thought was was funny enough, but but also not necessarily something that would make you think to yourself, wow, that is that is inappropriate, and I don't want that in my Flying Saucer podcast. Dear Wondering in Bristow, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, black lace. Yes, uh, dear Dottie could get uh, could get kind of uh, kind of frisky a little bit sometimes. Also, um, in this one case, Dottie's reader or one of Dottie's readers had a question about aliens, and and this letter comes to Dottie from skeptic in Pittsburgh. Dear Dottie, my sixteen-year-old son told me he was going to a movie the other night and said he would be home by midnight. Three days later, he staggered into the house about four o'clock in the afternoon, drugged out of his mind. When I asked him to explain himself, he said he had been abducted by space aliens who gave him dope aboard their UFO. I've never known my son to lie to me, but this story sounds fishy. What do you think? And Dottie's reply was characteristically straightforward. Dear Skeptic, Space aliens have been accused of a lot of things, but drugging 16-year-old kids isn't one of them. Your son is lying through his teeth, lady, and the sooner you realize it, the better. Don't, uh, don't get on the wrong side of Dottie. That was one of her kinder responses to a reader. So, aside from Dear Dottie, we also had the Weekly World News getting involved in politics. Space alien meets with President Bush. This story from May 14, 1991, is a crucial piece of the hidden history of the end of the Cold War. President George Bush's dream of establishing a new world order came closer to reality when he secretly met with a space alien who promised to provide the education, technology, and strategic know-how to achieve lasting peace on Earth by 1997. That's the word from UFO researcher Nathaniel Dean, who says the extraterrestrial clearly came to Earth on a mission and now it seems that its mission is complete. Dean's sources confirm that the creature met with President Bush for six hours at Camp David. And while the White House, Congress, CIA, and every official in Washington will deny it, he knows for a fact that the focus of that meeting was the New World Order that Bush had talked so much about. Neither the White House nor CIA spokesmen would comment on the extraordinary summit, and they flatly denied that an alien has visited Camp David or any other government facility. Dean expected the denials, and countered them with statements from a dozen highly placed government sources. He also produced a photograph that shows the president talking with the alien as they strolled down a wooded path at Camp David, the presidential hideaway in Maryland. 
Of note here is an appearance by Nathaniel Dean, a UFO expert who will be the go-to voice for Alien Matters from here on out, uh, especially when this particular alien shows up. Significantly, this is where we see a, a drop-off in actual UFO people speaking to the Weekly World News. As for Mr. Dean, I've found no trace of him outside the pages of this publication. If you know him, uh, tell him to drop me a line. I'd like to talk to him. As we get into the election of 1992, the aliens proved to be a crucial factor. Space Alien Meets with Ross Perot This was in the July 4th, 1992 issue, and according to the front page, it's a two-hour summit that will change the world. Presidential hopeful Ross Perot secretly met with a space alien late last spring, and we've got the photograph to prove it. The picture clearly shows the Texas billionaire and the extraterrestrial walking through an office corridor in Dallas. And while political analysts refused to speculate on the purpose of the historic two-hour meeting, Perot insiders confirmed that possible trade and cooperation initiatives between the alien's home planet and the United States were discussed. Oddly enough, the creature pictured with Perot is no stranger to American politics or the White House. According to UFO researcher Nathaniel Dean, it is the same extraterrestrial creature that met with President George Bush at Camp David in April 1991. I can't get into specifics because I've got sources to protect. I can tell you that Perot met with the creature for a little over two hours, and judging from the smile on his face, he was clearly pleased with the outcome. Reportedly not so pleased with the meeting were the White House and CIA. Highly placed sources confirmed that no less a figure than President Bush was, quote, furious, and felt that the alien, which met with him for six hours at Camp David last year, had, quote, totally betrayed him. FBI and CIA spokesmen refused to comment for the record. Nothing says your campaign is serious like meeting with a space alien. The article also included a sidebar from regular advice giver Serena Sabak, the world's sexiest psychic, who predicted that Perot would get 62% of the vote, Bush would get 30%, and Clinton would, quote, run a very distant third with a mere 8% of the vote, end quote. She did not specify if this was the popular vote or the electoral college result. Of course, things move quickly in the world of politics, and in the August 18th, 1992 issue, there was some startling news. Space Alien Endorses Bill Clinton Nathaniel Dean shows up again, and there are some great indicators of where the space alien's policy preferences may be. A visiting space alien has made historic political news once again, publicly supporting Democratic Party candidate Bill Clinton in his bid to become the next president of the United States. They had a 40-minute discussion about how our serious economic problems and how to solve them, said a Clinton aide. At the conclusion, the alien shook Governor Clinton's hand and said, With my help, you are the only man who can cure this country's economic ills. I support you all the way. The two men from different worlds also discussed the environment, health care, world peace, and social issues, but the emphasis was on the economic situation. It was an extremely amicable meeting, said UFO expert Nathaniel Dean, who was escorting the extraterrestrial across America and was present at the meeting with Clinton. The aliens from a planet that has grown from tough economic beginnings to become the most successful planet in the universe, Dean said. He told Clinton how they turned the economy around and created more jobs in a relatively short period of time. It was obvious they liked and respected each other. They shook hands warmly as Clinton thanked him for his support. You know, I think this may be where the disclosure movement actually began. Someone check and see if Stephen Greer subscribed to the Weekly World News back in 1992. As the campaign neared its end, there was another bombshell, one last bombshell that threatened to shatter the republic. 
five U.S. senators are space aliens. I won't keep you in suspense. It was John Glenn, Orrin Hatch, Nancy Kassebaum, Sam Nunn, and Alan Simpson. So no surprises there. Of course, Clinton won the 92 election, and Rush Limbaugh simulacrum Ed Anger had some thoughts about it in the December 1st, 1992 edition of the Weekly World News. Dear President Clinton, I knew you would be moving into the White House way back in July when that space alien jumped on the Clinton-Gore bandwagon. Let's face it, how the hell could you lose when you had this E.T. telling you everything from how to perk up the economy to showing up George Bush for what he was, a slave to the SNL fat cats who stole us blind in the 80s? So I hope you don't forget the spaceman when it comes to filling those high-level NASA posts or even a cabinet position or two. The bottom line, Prez Clinton, is that you owe this light bulb head big time, and we ain't talking about money. You gotta remember, Mr. Prez, the alien was for Clinton when Clinton wasn't cool. Yep, when things were looking darkest, it was your buddy the alien who put you on the front page of every darn newspaper in the country. After the Weekly World News, of course. That's when America began to stand up and take notice, Mr. Prez. If the space aliens trust Governor Clinton, then so do I, was the new battle cry that rang out from sea to shining sea. So here's an Ed Anger salute, sir, to you and your friend from another world. If you guys can't get America back on its feet again, nobody can. Including Ross Perot, that Texas tycoon. I'm a little irritated that I, I wasn't able to find an, an appropriate Ed Anger piece that included his 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 classic opening line, I'm pig-biting mad. But I think the line, you owe that light bulb head big time, and I'm not talking about money, is um, that I'm going to work that into conversations at some point. You owe that light bulb head big time. So... There was also a space alien poll to gauge sort of reader feedback about this issue of of the alien's status in the Clinton administration. Space alien poll. Yes, President Clinton should reward the space alien for his help in winning the election. No, I wouldn't trust this alien as far as I could throw him. Mr. Clinton should dump the E.T. now before it's too late. Mail your vote to Space Alien Poll, Weekly World News, 600 South East Coast Avenue, Lantana, Florida, 33462. I wonder if anybody actually spent money on a stamp to make their feelings known in that poll. The Weekly World News was an interesting paper in that we we see an incredible slide in journalistic standards. Stop laughing. An incredible slide in journalistic standards from the early 80s to the early 90s. Yeah, it was always a supermarket tabloid, but the transition from serious stories about actual UFO events to the generic space alien showing up from time to time means something. But I'm not sure what. I've got a guess. At some point in the 80s, real UFO stories ceased to grab readers' attention. At some point, the same laughter curtain that often fell across other media outlets dropped on the Weekly World News. The question of UFOs and aliens was no longer a story to cover, but a joke to attract eyeballs at the checkout line. A quarter century of Weekly World News goodness is available thanks to Google. There's a link in the show notes, as well as links to additional information about the actual cases the tabloid discussed. And if anyone has information about UFO researcher Nathaniel Dean, get in touch via the usual channels. I want to talk to the man. This edition of The Saucer Life also featured Nelson Sinat, Roberta Evangeline Straith, and Sasha Gimlinson. Our associate producer is Simpson J. Hanover III, and The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, 
working for the good of mankind along the lines of truth. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.